Father, we ask this morning that you would show us once again what it is to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Teach us of the union that we have with you and the unity that that ought to bring with one another. Teach us to put behind the old way of life and instead to wholeheartedly pursue and strive towards that which you have purchased us for. And we ask this, that you might be glorified as your plan in the Lord Jesus is brought to fruition. Amen. The nature of the world that we live in is one of division. It's the character of our world. Everything from the large-scale war, uh, trade conflict, religious disputes, philosophical disagreements of the right and the left, all the way down through to the individual and the personal and the daily the decisions that each one of us makes, the interaction that we have with people, even internally we are divided. It was brought home to me this week by the news of the funeral of uh, of Prince Leonard, which of course you're all very aware of. Uh, Prince Leonard Castley passed away last week and uh, had a a state funeral on Thursday. You, You know who I'm talking about, right? Where was Prince Leonard the Prince of? Thank you very much. The Principality of Hutt River, uh, that most Australian of principalities. This is the bloke who back in the 70s declared that his farm in Western Australia was a sovereign nation and decided that he would secede from Australia. He wanted nothing more to do with the government. Uh, Basically, he didn't want to pay their taxes. And so he was going to be the sovereign ruler. Actually, the problem was... Uh, This is completely beside the point. But the problem was that the government introduced wheat quotas and that would only have allowed him to sell 90 of the 9,900 acres of wheat that he had ready to harvest. And so he thought, that's not good enough. Get lost. I'm going to do my own thing. The point is, the illustration is that in a microcosm, in, in a little example, he is every one of us. Every one of us is divided because we say, I don't want to live by your rules. I don't want to play the game your way. We say that to God. I want to play the game my way. I'm not interested in what an authority will tell me to do. I'm going to replace God with the little God of myself. Now that all sounds well and good. You get to call the shots in your own life until one little God bumps into another little God And I want things to happen my way, but he wants things to happen his way. And so there is conflict. There is division. And it plays itself out in all sorts of ways. It plays itself out in the way that we speak as we seek to get our own way in our speech. It plays itself out in the way that we see other people. They are now tools for me to get ahead. It plays itself out in all sorts of ways. Now, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus... We are going to see today we are to be different for we are to be people who pursue unity rather than division. Now, if you remember last week, what is a Christian? We talked about the cost of following Jesus. Uh, You might remember my mate Luke who spent, he only lasted one day as a plumber's apprentice. He found out what the cost was to being a plumber and he decided it wasn't a cost he was prepared to pay. We talked about the cost of following Jesus, which is everything. Are you prepared to pay that cost? Now today, we're talking about the first half of that little sentence we read in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. 
See, that imagery of baptism is the imagery of being united to God. Now, I'm not going to preach a sermon on baptism. Uh, we, we may do that at some point in the future. I'm sure that will be a very helpful thing. But I'm taking that image of baptism as being one of union between us and the Trinity, between us and God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I found it very helpful uh, during the week. I, this is the old school prayer book. And uh, there's, there's a prayer at the end of the baptism service uh, that just kind of spells out this interaction between us and God, the Father, the Son and the Spirit in baptism. I'll read it for you. It goes like this. Just listen to the different ways that it speaks of the three persons of the Trinity in our union with God. Lord God, our Father, maker of heaven and earth, we thank you that you have been pleased to give your servant new birth with your Holy Spirit, to adopt him for your own and to receive him into the fellowship of your church. Right, so it begins with saying how in baptism, God adopts us as his own and by his spirit gives us new birth. It continues, being buried with Christ in his baptism, may he die to sin, walk in newness of life and be united with Christ in his resurrection. May he grow in the faith into which he has been baptized and may all things belonging to the spirit live and grow in him. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be adopted by the Father, united to the Son and indwelt by the Spirit of God. It is to be united with God himself. Now, by the way, if you haven't been baptised, as something you'd be interested in doing, come and talk to me afterwards. It's a great celebration as well as an opportunity to witness. To be a disciple is to be united to God. Come to Ephesians. I hope you've still got it open. Have a look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10. See, if in, in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is spelling out God's big picture, his overall plan for all of humanity and the consequences for God's people. So chapter 1 and verse 10, here is God's plan to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. There is God's big picture plan for all of time, for all of humanity, for all of his creation to unite it under Jesus. A plan that was revealed to the apostles. It was a mystery before then. Revealed to the apostles, proclaimed in the gospel. It's the plan that we have heard and is now astonishingly demonstrated in the church. God's plan for the whole of creation is on view, is on display in the church. It's the architect's model that shows you what the final thing is going to look like. Astonishing to think that us, this group of people gathered here, are somehow displaying to the world God's eternal plan. Now, of course, to be united to God is going to require a fairly radical change in us. See, the thing that divided us from God and from each other, was our sin. That rejection of God in our lives and that desire to be our own little gods. And so it required God to deal with that. Jesus' death that brought the forgiveness, Jesus' resurrection that gives us a new life, and Jesus, the Spirit of God himself, who seals us and works in us to make us gods. 
And so chapter 2 and verse 18 in Ephesians, here is where this unity begins. For through him, through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, that division that used to exist, both have access to the Father by one Spirit. The Spirit of God is what brings about unity because it is the one Spirit through which all people now access God. If there were divisions before and one person would do this and the other person would do that and the Jew would have the law and the Gentile would have ignorance and there was maybe a path to God and maybe not, now there is just one way through the one Spirit by the death and resurrection of the one man, Jesus. And so having been united to God such that we are now united to each other, Paul says, chapter 4 and verse 3, and by the way, if you want a summary of the whole book of Ephesians, here it is in one sentence, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We have been called to unity with each other. As we are united to one another, we display to the world the plan of God to unite all things. Which, of course, is going to require a very different way of living. If our world is characterised by division and we are supposed to display unity, we're going to have to live a very different way. We're going to spend a bunch of time exploring that principle before we then spell out a whole lot of the applications that Paul lists. Now, uh, the week didn't quite plan how I work out how I planned it, and so the outline that you have bears no resemblance whatsoever to my talk. Uh, so feel free to just scribble away on your bit of paper instead. Not like you were, Paul says, rather now like God. Not like you were, now like God. What is this new life? What is it characterised by? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? Now, if last week was disciples out on mission, this week is disciples at home. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus amongst this group? Well, verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, Don't be like you used to be. I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Which I take it, they they are Gentiles, they are non-Jewish Christians. Don't live how you used to live and how they still do. And what was that? What is the description? In the futility of their thinking. An unusual word, futility, futile. What does it mean? It just means you don't achieve the thing you set out to achieve. It doesn't do anything. Thinking that is futile. It's a strange way of putting it, isn't it? I mean, people are very, very clever. You stop and think for a moment about the things that humanity has achieved. We've put a man on the moon, probably, right? We've uh, created the internet and vaccines. We have vehicles that can travel at the speed of sound while inside it's silent and you can listen to classical music. We have invented the internet and the mechanism by which we can communicate instantaneously, just about, across the entire world. There are some people that are very, very, very clever, And yet, this verse says, outside of Jesus, their thinking is futile. It will not achieve 
Well, what won't it achieve? Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. The cleverest human being that exists has a darkened mind and is separated from the life of God because of that ignorance. The cleverest human being that exists cannot and will not work out how to live the good life, let alone how to live the God life. It's rather insulting, isn't it? These verses. I mean, it's... To say to somebody who is outside of Jesus, it doesn't matter how clever you are, I don't know how intelligent you are, I'm not saying you're dumb necessarily, but the ignorance that is in you, the darkening of your mind, means that you will not find God and you therefore will not find the good life. And in the end, it's not even just an intellectual problem. It's not that we haven't yet found a good enough philosopher and one of them will sort it out. The problem stems from the heart. It stems from immorality. Again, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They can't understand because they don't want to understand. This is people outside of Jesus We need to get this. We need to understand the people around us. We need to remember who we were, that we might be thankful. Human beings on our own, separate from God, are wretches. Pitiful, really. Grasping, trying to find somehow some form of satisfaction, trying to find some form of good life, trying to somehow reach God. And failing miserably. Even, even people who come up with the best of human dreams. Whatever it is that you think the good life might look like. I think it's changing based on generations, by the way. What the, what the great Australian dream is. I mean, the, the previous generation, the great Australian dream. Own your own half acre block with a nice backyard for the kids to run around in. What? 2.3 kids, the cat and or the dog, depending on how crazy you are. To be able to work hard early, to have enough money put away, to retire early and be able to travel, but not be too far away from the grandkids at the same time. Right? That's just the great Australian dream. Our generation is different. Our generation, the, great, the, the, the dream is to have enough money to be able to travel whenever you want to and to work for a company that is both environmentally friendly, cares for the needy and the downtrodden and pays you a hefty chunk, you know, chunk of change. Right? If, if you can find a company that does all of that and preferably has a ping pong table, you've made it. Right? That's, that's kind of the dream. But see, it doesn't matter if that is your dream and you were to achieve that, you would still live in a divided world. You would still be fighting with this family that you say you love so much your work would still demand way too much of you your house needs to have to mow it all the time now you've got the yard that you wanted if you want to go and travel you go and travel and you get sick in every country you visit i mean it's just that is the world around us and it's even worse than that because it's not just futility it's wickedness did you see that the hardening of their hearts, the outcome of which, verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You take God out of the picture, you take God out of your mind, and it is not long at all before the depraved nature of humanity 
just flourishes. You lose sensitivity. Your conscience no longer says, that's not right. And you just pursue all kinds of depravity. We're talking about your neighbours, right? We're talking about the people that you know. Maybe we're talking about you, if you're not in Jesus. And we struggle against this idea. It's, it's such a... But people are good, right? People are by and large decent. Certainly if you're a middle class person, you've got middle class neighbours, it's hard to think of your next door neighbour as being somebody who is in slavery to the impureness that is within them and slavery to Satan himself, such that wickedness and evil characterises them. They're lovely people. They keep the lawn mowed and the flowers grow, right? They say good morning to me every day. It's just... We have to understand that this is who they are. Now, it's easier to see, I think, at a society level rather than at the individual level. Individuals can be very good at hiding things. But you just stop and think for a moment about ourselves. Just think about Australian culture and, and the transition from the 50s, 60s through to today. You take God out of the picture in one generation and by the next generation, you are so desensitized that anything goes. And it's happened among us. And people say, well, no, but that's good because it's freedom. I'm free to do whatever I want now. I can live my life the way I want to. Now, you've just got to stop and look at the outcome to see that it is not good. We are more depressed, more suicidal, more divorced than we have ever been. You stop and look at the numbers for a moment. One in four Australians now lives alone. One in four. And you think, well, that's good. People have freedom, right? They're making their own choices. Except that you go and you talk to those people and you say, what's the thing you value the most? And they say family life. But you live alone. Well, yeah, because I'm incapable of creating family life. One in three marriages now end in divorce. Young men in particular, although young women are rapidly catching up, young men are three times more likely to commit suicide than they were in the 1950s. It doesn't work. Godlessness doesn't bring freedom. It brings even greater bondage. Bondage to sin, bondage to selfishness, bondage to evil, bondage to lies. You need to understand people. This is those who are outside of Jesus. You need to understand them so you don't go back to being that person to start with. Do not live as the Gentiles do. But you need to understand it so that you understand the people around you. As we go and we do evangelism, we go on the great mission that we talked about last week, you need to know that these are the people you're talking to. You need to understand so that you have so much thankfulness because this is who we were. We're not saying that we are somehow different or better. Or No, we've just had mercy poured on us. That's it. A gift someone gave us. Say thank you. We need to understand so that we will turn to the only true solution. Do you believe that people are evil, sinful, darkened in their minds, not capable because of the hardness of their hearts of finding God and his ways? If it wasn't just for the lack of opportunity, we would be the worst of sinners like anyone else. Well, what's the solution to this? The world's solution to the problems of the world is just to reorganize things. 
If we could reorganise things, we'll be right. We just need a different government. If we have a different government, it'll all get sorted, right? Well, we've gone this way, now we need to try that way for a while. Oh, that one didn't work either. Let's go back this way for a while and let's try communism or let's, let's become a democracy. Let's free them from their, the tyranny of the oppressor. They're good things to do, sure, but it's not going to solve it. Let's have a different taxation system. Let's have more education, less education, more private schools, more public schools. Let's have self-improvement. Let's have other person improvement. Let's just, let's just move dirt around for a while and we'll solve the problems of the world. None of it's going to work. The thing that solves this problem, that of the darkened mind and the futile thinking, is the truth. Well, have a look at verse 20. You, however, didn't come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. The truth is what will truly set you free. The truth that is found in him. The truth about God and the truth about ourselves and the truth about salvation. The truth about Jesus. This is what is needed And it is a truth that teaches us, those who have found Jesus, who have been united to him, to put off the old way of life. Don't live that way anymore and instead live the new self. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The Christian is somebody who is being transformed. The old died with Jesus, the new was raised to new life in him, and the Spirit now works in us, uniting us to him to transform us into the new self. And what does the new self look like? It has a mind that is renewed, that learns, that grows, that is transformed by God. And it is like God. I take it not like God in the sense of what clothes we put on. Thank you, Andrew's little demonstration there. To be like God doesn't mean to wear sandals and socks, if that was what Jesus wore. Uh, Probably not, but anyway. It, It means to put on his character. Be like God. In fact, chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God, therefore, as his dearly loved children. Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. See, to be like God is to be like Christ, is to be sacrificial of yourself, that is. If the world is marked by division because each one of us is our own selfish little God, then to display the union that God has bought for us requires us to be self-sacrificial, to care for the the good of the other over and above our own. That is how we will strive for unity. You with me so far? That's the principle. God's big plan is to unite everything under Christ. He has begun that already in us, uniting us to himself and so uniting us to each other. That is now being displayed for the world in the church as we live out the new life that God has bought for us. It means we can no longer live the old way. We must live the new way, the new self, which is like God, 
righteous and holy. It is like God choosing to love and to sacrifice. There's the principle. Now, how does it play out? I have got seven different things that I've pulled out of this passage and how it plays out. I think there's a couple more, but we'll run with seven. And we'll see how we go for time. If you want more at the end, just tell me and we'll, we'll keep going for a while longer. It plays out, firstly, in our speech. And I don't think it's a mistake that they're, they're so, it's just woven through the whole way how we are to speak. Right, chapter 4 and verse 25, we'll start with this. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour, for we are all members of one body. To be a disciple of Jesus and live the new life that brings about unity requires us to not lie to each other. I mean, that's kind of common sense, but also kind of not. Speak the truth. Personally, I find that the hardest when the truth is going to hurt me. When the consequences of speaking the truth are somehow going to bring, you know, I know that if I fess up to that thing, well, it's going to go bad, right? Speak the truth. There is no reason to lie. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. No unwholesome talk. We're good at that as Australians, aren't we? The, the cutting remark, the little snide comment, sarcasm. I mean, all sarcasm is, is putting other people down. The, the condescending, the, the little put-downs. You ever notice that? Blokes in particular, the only way we know how to relate to each other is by putting each other down. That's, that's, it, it happens all the time. And it's so damaging. I say this to people all the time. A little put-down, particularly in marriage, but it applies all the time. A little put-down, those little little kind of comments you make about someone else, even about yourself, that whole self-deprecating humour kind of thing, has its place, but every little put-down is a paper cut. It's not a big wound, right? It's not like you're going up at someone with a broadsword and shoving it through their ribs, right? which you can do with words. It's just it's a little paper cut. That's what, and you've heard people say, oh, no, that's how we relate. It's just a game we play. It's just the fun that we have together. We just put each other down a little bit. I mean, it's no big deal. It doesn't harm anyone. It's okay. It's just a little paper cut. Never killed anyone, right? But what about 10 paper cuts in one day? It's going to get pretty painful. I mean, one hurts. Little hurts. Ten's going to hurt. And you do that day after day after day. A thousand paper cuts will do a lot of damage. No unwholesome talk. But isn't this a beautiful picture instead? Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Gee, I'd love to be like that. To only speak words that edify, that are good for other people, that, that are encouraging and complimenting, that point out people's strengths. I'm so bad at that. I can point out your, 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 the negative stuff. I can point out what you're bad at all day long if you like. But to point out something what they're good at, oh, that's really hard. Now, of course, words that build up sometimes will require us to rebuke and to correct and to teach and to train. They, they're not removed simply by saying good, positive words. But the intent is to build up, not to tear down. And how good is it that it may benefit those who listen? There's a way of speaking that builds somebody else up and is of benefit to other people who hear how we do it. It'd be beautiful. 
chapter 5 and verse 4. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Now, this is harder, I think, depending on what industry you work in. I knew some blokes, I don't know, some blokes who were builders, and they said it is just so hard. I mean, there's just obscenity and coarse joking everywhere, every day. It's just how people talk all around them, all the time. It's so hard to not be that way. Rather, the disciple of Jesus is to be marked by thankfulness. Just thanking God all the time. What a witness it would be if we were to say to our neighbour, gee, I'm thankful to God for you. How encouraging would it be to say to your brother and sister, gee, I'm thankful to God for you. I'm so thankful to God for the way that he is doing in you. For the way that I've seen you grow and for the encouragement you were at Bible study the other week. For that prayer you prayed. I'm so thankful to God for you. You can't, you're there at church every week and you give me a smile. I'm so thankful to God. What a witness to the union that he has brought among us. It struck me the other day, there's a guy who comes to 8 o'clock. Who, we do communion every week at 8 o'clock. And, uh, and every time as we do it, he just says, thank you, Jesus. I, I don't hear anyone else say it. Maybe you're saying it inside yourself. Maybe you, But he just, thank you, Jesus, he says, every time he takes communion. Marked by thanksgiving rather than obscenity. Right? Our speech, verse 19 of chapter 5, last one. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't really know what to do with this one, to be honest. Uh, Am I supposed to sing you a song on the way out? Are we supposed to sing to each other? Um, I take it, yes, we are. I don't know if you've noticed, a whole bunch of the songs that we sing at church aren't directed to God. They're not a little private moment with blinkers on that each one of us has with the words on the screen or or, or with God, if we're being particularly spiritual, right? It's not. So many of the songs that we sing are songs to each other. Can I encourage you when you sing, don't be afraid to make eye contact with someone. Let's just start small. One of my favourite, one of my favourite memories of uh, at college, at more college, you, you do chapel a couple of times a week, and and you kind of rotate through different forms of it. And there's one chapel called Cash Chapel, uh, which is not an indication of how your offertory is delivered. I'm pretty sure it's named after a bloke called Cash. But anyway, uh, Cash Chapel is this really narrow, long building, and the pews face each other. It's only four pews, two pews either side deep with a really narrow aisle in between them. And so you're kind of sitting right where I am from here to Ken, just facing rows of people. And so you sing facing. It's, 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 I loved it. There were some people who couldn't hack it, right? And so they'd, they'd, just, they'd sing like this because it was prayer books. And so you'd just be doing these ones, right? You just, it, it, it's a little bit... Uh. I just love the picture of of, of the joy and the thanksgiving that is in the Christian life. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks. How could we not? He has taken us who were like those Gentiles, darkened and futile and ignorant and hardened, and he has transformed us by his Son to be his very own children and poured out on us all the blessings in the spiritual realms in in Christ Jesus. How can we not be full of joy and thanksgiving towards our God and so towards each other? This new life is marked out by how we use our words. It's marked out by our attitude to people. Come back to chapter 4 and verse 26. 
marked out by our attitude to people. See, firstly, it changes what we do with anger. Verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. See, no longer are people an obstacle in my way or somebody who I'm just going to climb over to get to where I want to be or to use for my own gain. No longer must I let my anger dictate who I am. There is a time to be angry. God himself displays anger. But in your anger, do not sin. And you know the easiest way to sin in your anger? Just let it fester. Just keep it inside. Dwell on it and just turn it into bitterness. Deal with it. Don't let the sun go down on it. Now, of course, you've got to combine that with point one about your speech. If you're angry with someone, make sure you speak in a way that's going to build them up and not cut them down. In a way that is thanksgiving, full of thanksgiving to God rather than uh, full of whatever the alternative is. And note that anger that is not taken care of well gives the devil a foothold. And I take it that's a foothold in the person who is angry. You're damaging yourself by allowing anger to percolate. We see people differently. Have a look at chapter 4 and verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Don't be bitter. Don't let that rage and that anger simmer. Don't don't brawl, right? Don't punch ups. I have been at a church where that happened. Don't do that. Slander, speaking badly of other people, all malice, get rid of it. Instead, I mean, again, such a beautiful picture of how we are to see people. Be kind and compassionate to How much does that display union and unity compared to a bunch of grudges and gossip and snide remarks and bitterness? To be kind and compassionate. And then perhaps the single hardest verse in the whole Bible, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I've spoken to people who, uh, you know, we, we, we talk about the hardest, harshest thing you like. I talk about hell and God's damnation and judgment for eternity to those who are his enemies. And they're like, yeah, yeah that's cool. That's okay. Yeah, all right. That sounds fair enough. Yep, yep, that's cool. And then you raise this and you say, and God also says for his people to forgive each other like they have been forgiven. And they say, wait, hang on a second. Just, <laughs> whew. David, you, you don't know what they did to me. No, I don't. But I do know what you did to Jesus. And he forgave you. You want to display the love of God among us? Then how can we possibly bear a grudge? It plays out in how we speak. It plays out in our attitude to people. It plays out in how we think of work. Verse 28 of chapter 4. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Again, note the principle. Don't be selfish, be generous. I would have written it, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work and provide for himself. 
But no, it's not even that. It's not just me. It's work so that you have resources that you can share. You can give to others. Move from being self-centered to being other person-centered. Right. Fourthly, the use of our bodies and of our minds are transformed. Have a look at chapter three and verse, chapter five and verse three. Sorry, chapter five, verse three. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. These are improper for God's holy people. Not even a hint. We live in a world that is saturated. I mean, sexual immorality and impurity is just the air that we struggle to not breathe now. It is everywhere, in every circumstance of life. You cannot help but encounter it. You want to be a witness to something different, then make sure that in your life there is not even a hint of it. That means that if you are somebody who struggles with... In fact, now let's just use the right word. If you are sinning with pornography... If you are sinning with adultery, whether it's in your mind or physically, if you are sinning with lusts, if you are sinning with inappropriate relationship in dating or just casual hookups or whatever it might be, if you are in any way pursuing that, the new life is one where not even a hint is present if you're going to be like God. Do what it takes. Many of us have accountability whether in the form of technology, whether in the form of people that we speak to and we pray with. And just in case you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, whew, I've got a flight lick because that one's not me. He kind of still nails us all with greed. Again, verse 3, I skipped over it, but among you there must not even be a hint of greed. For this is improper for God's holy people. Look down at verse 5. You can be sure of this. No immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ with God. See, sexual immorality is easy to define. It's easy to beat people up about that one. Because I can list for you, if you are doing any of these activities, then you are being sexually immoral. I can give you a list. It'd be pretty long, but we can do it, right? Whereas greed, I, I kind of can't. It, it, it's, it's intangible. It's about your heart. I think, in essence, it's just a desire for more. I want more. It's the opposite of contentment. Contentment says, I'm okay with what God has given me. I'm okay where God has placed me. Greed says, I want more. I need more money. I need a bigger house or better facilities or more land or I need more toys or more cars or more leisure or more entertainment. Or I, I, I need more. And know what Paul says about it. It is idolatry. It is having a God other than the living God. To be a greedy person is to say to the living God, you can just be my side chick. I've got my main girl over here. And I guess you get what's left. And you think that you will inherit? No, it's not about us and what we have and what we can get, but being like God and serving and giving. Sixth way it plays out, make the most of the time. Verse 15, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Make the most. Make the most of every single opportunity. Every chance you get to do good, grab it and do it. And whether it's a chance to learn, a chance to develop and practice, a chance to do some teaching yourself, every opportunity to use a word that encourages and builds up, every opportunity to serve, to say no to things that you have to in order to be able to do good to others, grab them because the days are evil. Evil is just going to keep flooding your way. There's always going to be opportunities to do the wrong thing. Always, all the time, to think evil, to say evil, to act evil. It will always be there. So make the most of every opportunity to do good. Oh, no, I don't, I don't, I, yeah, I know you asked for help, but yeah, I won't this time. I hope that's okay. What? Do it. Love, serve, cherish, pour yourself out for others. I could go and talk to them. I know they need some encouragement right now, but eh. Do it. Make the most of it. Be wise. Seventh, be filled with the Spirit rather than spirits. Verse 18, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit of God, which leads to self-control and in the end, self-sacrifice. To be a disciple of Jesus... We heard last week is somebody who learns the path to life and proclaims it to others. This week, the disciple of Jesus is somebody who united with God, is therefore united with God's people and so loves and serves others. Now, this is our engaged term. We, don't, we, don't, we haven't been talking about it too much this year. We, we break the four terms of the year up into kind of different focuses this term engage, getting God's people geared up and ready to be out there and proclaiming the gospel, which term two is our evangelism term. We dedicate ourselves in a focused way to proclaiming the message of Jesus. And I want you to be preparing yourself for that by remembering that we must be light. God is right now displaying to the world his plan in us in how we live, in how we treat one another, in the new me and the new you. Wouldn't it be a shame? Wouldn't it be astonishingly sad if come next term and we're sharing the gospel with someone, you get the joy of saying, do you want, do you want to come and accept Jesus? Do you want to come and live God's way? And gee, what do they say to you? Why? It's no different to my life. You were once darkness, Paul says, but you are now light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. What a powerful witness. If we as God's people united to him and to each other were to live in a way that shows Christ. Be imitators of God, therefore, as his dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, in whose death and whose resurrection you have brought us back to yourself. Thank you for your spirit that you pour out in our lives to transform us, 
We ask that you teach us to be your disciples, to live lives that are no longer the old way, but now the new way, with minds that are transformed and desires to love and to serve rather than be selfish. Father, please, would you display among us your plan to unite all things in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you do that for your glory. Amen.